And over the course of the week, we were actually able to install 40 water filters uh, for 40 different families. We shared the gospel with 65 uh, different Dominican families. And then on top of that, we saw six families actually trust in Christ. So it was a really fruitful, amazing week. Thank you for your generosity, your donations, uh, and your prayer throughout the week. So give you one more number. We had, uh, we had five confirmed cases of Montezuma's revenge, okay? So that's, that's how you know you're doing a mission trip right, when the conversions just barely outweigh the amount of diarrhea cases. That means you're doing it right. So it was, uh, it was an up and down experience, but our team had great attitudes, uh, and they, were, they're, they're, they really did a great job. So uh, every night when we were meeting, we would actually have uh, what we called a debrief. Our team would get together. And basically, we would just recount some of our observations, interactions, conversations throughout the day. And if you've ever traveled outside the U.S., particularly, you know, south of the border, you've gone into the, you know, below the equator, one of the things you're quickly confronted with, one of the most eye-opening experiences, is just the lack of material resources. So we hopped on a plane and traveled to a part of the world where they don't even have clean drinking water. They don't have immediate access to it. And as we were just sharing our experiences, very quickly our students started shooting their hands up and saying, hey, it's amazing to see how content, how happy, how hospitable, how welcoming these people are when they're living in such material poverty. I mean, it really almost shocked, it confused. Our students were blown away to be in a part of the world where people had lacked access to clean drinking water and yet they were so welcoming. Uh, And there's a reason for this, okay? There's a reason for this. There's a great book called When Helping Hurts, and it was written by a couple academics, and they talk about uh, poverty alleviation. And here's one of the observations they make. They say this, that Americans tend to have a very narrow view of poverty. Their view of poverty is very myopic. When we think poverty, we we tend to think strictly uh, a lack of finances. So, a lack of a a savings account, a lack of air conditioning, a lack of material resources. But what the authors of this book actually suggest is that poverty is multifaceted. And there's not one category, there's actually three categories. And true poverty is this. It includes material poverty, but also two other categories. It also includes social and spiritual poverty. So social poverty would be this, a lack of meaningful relationships. And spiritual poverty would be a lack of a saving relationship with the God of the Bible. And this makes perfect sense. This is why you can go to another part of the world, and, the, and although they're lacking you know, finances and material wealth, they seem rich because they have deep, meaningful relationships with friends and family members, and their community is very tight-knit. And they have a deep, meaningful relationship with God. And this is also why we can interact with people in our own nation who seem very prosperous, or enjoying the benefits of suburbia, and yet they're completely discontent. They're unfulfilled because they have material resources, but they lack a relationship with Jesus, and they don't have meaningful friendships. They're isolated. They're alone. And so this is something that we dialogued about each and every evening, because at first our students were shocked. They were amazed. They were thinking to themselves, and this, it's because as Americans, this whole idea of materialism and wealth, it's hard-baked into our culture. It's the air we, air we breathe as Americans, and it's why it's so hard for us to fathom that you could actually be happy and not have a Ford truck parked outside your house. That you could actually be happy without high-speed internet and Wi-Fi 
and air conditioning and, and a totally renovated kitchen. It's why we're shocked by the fact that you can be happy without an Xbox because we believe, all right, in order for me to be happy, fulfilled, and satisfied, I have to have wealth. I have to have riches. And that's actually what we're going to talk about this morning. We're doing a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're looking at different things that are vanity, that we think will satisfy us, but ultimately they leave us wanting more. This morning, we're going to look at riches. We're, looking at, we're going to look at wealth. Do you know this? That, that kind of this time, uh, this part of the world that we live in is one of the most prosperous generations in human history. In general, okay, the level of wealth that we experience is greater than even kings and queens several hundred years ago. Do you know that half the world lives on about $2.50 a day? That's what they live on. That's their daily ration. A typical American, when you look at all their subscriptions to Netflix and Hulu and cell phones, spends $7 a day strictly on entertainment. And yet, if you think about our country, we're largely unfulfilled. There's a deep discontent that we experience. Most Americans feel like there must be something more. Did you know this? This is a strange paradox, that on the one hand, this is the most prosperous generation, and yet on the other hand, we're deeply unfulfilled. Did you know that, that Americans use more antidepressants than the whole world combined? Anxiety rates are skyrocketing. Suicide is at an all-time high. Here's a quote uh, from a professor named Jonathan Haidt. It says this, Wealth itself only has a small direct effect on happiness because it so effectively speeds up the uh, hedonic treadmill. As the level of wealth has doubled or tripled in the last 50 years in many industrialized nations, the levels of happiness and satisfaction with life that people report have not changed. And depression has actually become more common. Okay? So what is Height saying? He's saying what the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, is that wealth, is, wealth and riches are vanity. Are vanity. Okay? I'm not quite as cool as Scientina. I forgot my one prop. Okay? And this is it. But if you remember, the author of Ecclesiastes says that riches are vanity. Now, if you're new to this series, you might be wondering, what does this word vanity mean? It, it, it means that it's vapid. It's a mist. You can't wrap your fingers around it. It's here one moment, and then it's gone. In other words, okay, it's like a cloud of mist. Okay, don't worry. This is not some harsh chemical. It's all essential oils. Actually, I have no idea what's in here. I just <laughs> grabbed it from the house. Okay, but, but it says that wealth, okay, it's a mist, it's vapid. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. And so some of you might be sitting here and just thinking, all right, man, Ben's going to get after the rich people, okay? He, he, he's going to crush the one percenters, okay? And I want to eat the rich. I'm a Bernie supporter. Man, and you're just on the edge of your seat because you're like, this sermon isn't for me. It's for that guy who drove up in that car. And I would just say this. Even if you're not, quote, unquote, rich, okay, remember what I just said. That if you have a global perspective, we actually are the 1%. If you have a sense of history, this is the wealthiest generation in human history. But more than that, when the Bible talks about wealth, okay, it says things like this. The author of Hebrews says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. See, when Scripture warns us about wealth, it's not the possession of wealth. It's actually the obsession of wealth. Do you see the difference? It's the love of money. 
When Paul advises one of his disciples, he says, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When Jesus preaches this sermon on the mount, he says, be on guard against covetousness. That's an over-desire, an inordinate desire for wealth. It's a love of wealth. So once again, what scripture is calling out, it's not possessing wealth, it's obsessing, loving, craving wealth. At no point in Ecclesiastes does the author mention a salary or a tax bracket because it all has to do with the heart. So did you know this? You can actually be rich and not love money. And on the flip side, you can actually be poor and be obsessed with money. And unfortunately, did you know this? That on average, Georgians spend $529 a year on guess what? Lotto tickets. Lotto tickets. This is sort of the cruel irony that very often, okay, the poor think if I could just win the Powerball, if I could get the gain from the lotto, then what? Then my, all my problems will be solved. I'll finally have the good life. And this is where the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, steps in. Now remember, okay, this teacher, the wise one, in Ecclesiastes 2, he, he almost gives us a tour of his property. It's like MTV Cribs. It's like lifestyles of the rich and famous. And he starts walking through his different ownings and his property. And he says this. He says, look, I don't just drink wine. I have my very own vineyard, okay? Organic, you know, small batch, Cabernet. I'm making it right on my property. And remember, he talks about not just his garden and his park and his pool. He says, plural. I've got gardens. I've got homes. I've got parks. He's got multiples. And then he rolls through all the different things he owns. He says, I own slaves, I own people, I own herds and flocks. And then he just gives a catalog of his different wealth. I've got silver, I've got gold, I've even got singers. So the teacher, the man who's instructing us as we go through Ecclesiastes, he would be, quote unquote, somebody who has it all, somebody who's made it, somebody who's amassed incredible wealth. And he's about to give some reflections. Okay, on the vanity of wealth. So if you could, we're going to open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. And we'll look at verses 10 through 17. Okay. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 17. Read with me. He says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That's our word. It's the mist. When goods increase, they incre increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. I'm going to keep reading through verse 20. 
Verse 18, behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in all his heart. So here's where we begin. We're going to give you five points, five reasons that wealth, riches are simply vanity. They're a disappearing mist. Verse 10 says that wealth is never enough. It's never enough. It always leaves you wanting more. Okay, so my kids, my kids in the group. Hey kids, do you remember kind of the best Christmas gift you got this year or last year? Do you remember what it was like to, to, to you know, to, to make your Christmas list and to tear open into that present, to, to chunk all the wrapping paper and the bows and the gift bag to the side, and you finally got that gift? And how long did that gift satisfy you? A couple hours, a couple weeks, maybe a couple months? And here's my question. Think about that gift. Where is it now? Okay, where is it now? It might be collecting dust in the shed. It might be up in the attic. So where's that, you know, where's that toy? Where's that favorite sweater? Where's that Xbox game? It might be in the Goodwill pile now. It brought you so much pleasure, and now you barely remember where it is. Now, we're not just picking on kids, adults. Okay, remember when you got that first big boy or big girl job? You got that first paycheck, and you're like, I can't believe I'm making this much money each and every month. I'm set. I'm rich. I made it. But guess what? Now it's not enough. Now it's not enough. And it's true for us. It's even true for the mega rich. You might have heard this story before of Rockefeller. Rockefeller was like the OG multi-billionaire before Bezos and Bill Gates. There was Rockefeller. And there's this favorite, famous story where, where a reporter, an interviewer, actually asked him a question. He says, Rockefeller, he says, what was the, your favorite million that you ever made? Okay, that's an interesting question. And Rockefeller, in a moment of candor, he looks at him and he says, my next million. My next million. Because it wasn't enough. He always wants more. Here's a great quote right here. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, let's go to the next slide. There we go. This is a lady, Jewel Whitaker. She was the wife of a lotto winner at the time. It was the largest Powerball in human history. And what did she say? I wish all of this would have never happened. I wish I would have torn the ticket up. Do you know this? That lotto winners have an increased rate of suicide because money doesn't make you happy. It's vanity. Okay, I think this is funny. Have you noticed what all the mega rich people are doing in our day and age today? Like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, uh, what's the guy from Virgin? Richard Branson, okay? It's not enough to have earthly riches. What do they want now? They all want to what? They want to go to space. They want to go to Mars, okay? Because they don't want to dominate this world. They want the whole universe because it always leaves you wanting more, okay? It's never enough. Point number two, we're looking at verse 11. Everyone wants a piece of what you have, okay? If you do get rich, everybody wants a piece of what you have. Let's look at the verse, okay? When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. Okay, you guys remember this? I know we got a lot of, lot of hip-hoppers in the room. What did Notorious B.I.G. say? 
He said, mo money, mo problems, right? Everybody wants a handout when you make it big. And, and some of these people are professionals, right? When you make more money, you move into the higher tax bracket, the government says, I want a, little bit of, I want a bigger slice. The IRS takes more. The accountant takes more. And sometimes it's not the professionals. Oftentimes it's the family members and like the distant family members. You got the crazy uncles. You got the second cousins. You got the hometown friends that grew up with you. And when you make it big, they're saying, hey, man, I got this great business venture. Would you invest in this? Or let me just have some money. Let me just hold a hundred. You got it. You got to share with your hometown friends. You got to be loyal to the six, seven, eight. That's what happens. Uh, just in my line of work, uh, I've been able to interact with a lot of guys who make it big in the NFL. They play professional sports. And at some point, you know what each and every one of these guys does? They change their cell phone number. You want to know why? Because they're getting hit up by all their hometown boys. There was this great documentary years ago that ESP, ESPN did called Broke. Do you guys remember this? And, and, and what ESPN re- recognized was that a lot of professional athletes were going broke. And it wasn't because of financial illiteracy. It's because people were coming out of the woodworks and asking them for money. They mentioned one quarterback named Bernie Kosar. You might remember this guy. At one point, Bernie Kosar shares in this interview, he said, I was paying, paying the cell phone bills of 60 people. 60 people. My ex-wife, my former teammates, second cousins, because everybody wanted a handout. Okay? And if you really make it big, you got to pay more people. You got to hire a maid and a gardener and a nanny and an accountant. And the more you know, materials or possessions you have, you got to spend money to maintain it. Now, I'm going to give you, a, you know, this is for my old timers, but a couple of very cliche southern quotes. You ever heard this quote? Okay, the best two days, all right, in owning a boat or what? The day you buy it and the day you sell it. Because here's the idea you invest in something, the vacation home, the mastercraft, and then you got to keep it up. And it becomes a money pit. You got to invest over and over and over again. So when you get money, it, attach, it attracts leeches and hangers on, and everybody wants a piece. Okay, point number three why is money vain? There's no rest. No rest. Let's go to the verse. Next slide. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See, there tends to be these myths in our society and our economy of guys who hustle and grind. And so you hear these stories of Kobe Bryant, you know, shooting three-pointers at, at four in the morning. Mark Cuban closing deals at 5 a.m. Beyonce practicing all evening. And these are stars and CEOs and athletes who they skip meals, and they go days without sleep. And they often say things like this, I'll just sleep when I'm dead. But what does the teacher say? He says, no, here's what's really going on. This appetite for more, this hunger for wealth, it actually prevents good sleep and rest. Because you know what? When you're rich, what you're always thinking about as you lay in bed, you're thinking about the next deal. You're thinking about that bad investment you made earlier in the week, and you're constantly worried about a recession. Okay, so there's no rest. You can't even sleep well when you're rich. Point number, point number three, there's no security. There's no security. Now we're looking at verse 13. Looking at verse 13. Okay, he talks about a grievous evil that he has seen under the sun. 
And here's what the author is saying, that hoarding, amassing, accumulating wealth, it's a grievous evil. The original language here would say, this is sickening and this is wicked. Did you know this? Being stingy, it's going to hurt you, it's not going to help you. And some of you actually grew up in homes where maybe your father was a workaholic. You ever heard that expression? Where where maybe he was a a slave to the corporation. He was obsessed with his income. And that obsession brought destruction into your family. Oftentimes, workaholism comes at the expense of the health of your family. It ruins relationships. It can destroy your wealth. And it can certainly corrupt your integrity. Do you know this? Very often, riches will harm your character. This is why Jesus says, remember what he says to the rich, young ruler? He says it's hard for what? For rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he doesn't say it's impossible. He doesn't say it can't be done, but he says it's difficult. It's hard. Let's go to this next slide. This is a headline from the Washington Post, but it says this. Even the Washington Post recognizes that being rich can wreck your soul. It can wreck your soul. Oftentimes, wealth will make you selfish, unhappy, and dishonest. Do you know this? There's a direct correlation between the amount of money you make. It actually makes you less generous by percentage. The most generous state in the union is what? It's Mississippi. So here's what the the author of Ecclesiastes is describing. It's this one man, and he's an example. He's lost money in in, in some sort of deal that's gone bad. And we don't get details. We don't get information. There could have been some sort of economic collapse. Maybe got caught up in a pyramid scheme. Maybe just went bankrupt. But he's got nothing to give his kids. And even if he did, even if he did have a nice nest egg to pass on to the next generation, do you know this? When it comes to generational wealth and family-run businesses, that 60% of the time, okay, someone's kids will squander their parents' wealth. Okay, that's not good news. And 90% of the time, okay, the grandkid will. It's a little depressing. But there's no security with wealth. It's only going to hurt yourself. And final point, this is in verse 15, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Let's go to the next verse. Okay, we see, as he came from his mother's womb, his womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil. So here's what the author is saying. He says, maybe you're a pretty savvy investor. You, you got a great savings account. You did it right. You didn't lose your money in a bad deal. Guess what? You're going to lose your money in death. You're going to return to dust. Okay, and he sounds like a southern grandma, but he says, look, you didn't bring anything into this world, so what? You're not taking anything from it. He said, look, when you entered this world, you came in empty-handed. Now, I can't remember the moment of my birth, but I do know this, okay? I didn't come clutching a $20 bill. Like, I didn't tip the doctor who delivered me. Okay, I didn't cut a check to Tanner Hospital and said, here's my payment. I came in empty-handed. The only thing I was holding was maybe an umbilical cord. That's it. I had nothing. And that's exactly how you're going to leave. Okay, second southern cliche for the old old timers, right? You never see a hearse with what? With a trailer hitch or a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. And once again, the author goes back uh, to this image, this picture of someone who's amassed or accumulated great wealth. And he's eating. And in the ancient Near East... Okay, eating was a social event. 
It, it was a celebratory or joyful experience. And this man is eating in the dark. Do you see this? It's completely dark. And it's probably because he lost his money. He can't even keep the lights on. But it's also a metaphor that his life is over. There's no joy that he might as well be dead. At the end of his life, he's a miserable person. He's eating alone in the darkness with sorrow, sickness, and anger. He's lonely and he's got nobody to even share a meal with. And once again, do you see what the author is saying? He's saying riches. He's saying wealth. It's vanity. It's a breath. It's vapor. It's puff. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. This isn't something you can build your life on. It's an insecure basis or foundation for happiness. So that's the vanity of wealth. Is anybody excited about going to work tomorrow? Okay, just fired up. I'm retired. There you go. You played it right. (laughs) Well, now let's move to the blessings of God. Here's the good news. The blessings of God. So if we can't find contentment in wealth, if it's going to leave us wanting more, where do we find contentment? Where will our dreams and desires be fulfilled? I'm going to give you four things. First off, we've got to enjoy God himself. We've got to enjoy God himself. So very often when we think about happiness, we have a fill-in-the-blank mentality. If I could just have blank, then I'd be happy. If I could just experience or own blank, then I'd finally be satisfied. Here's a question to consider, maybe talk about over lunch. How do you fill in the blank? If I could just get into the dream school, if I could just date Mr. Wright, if I could only make VP in my corporation, if I could own a home in this neighborhood, if I could take this vacation, drink this type of bourbon, then I'd be happy. And do you understand what the author is saying? He's saying unless you fill the blank in with God himself, you're always going to want more. We fill in the blank with God. And this is what the psalmist reflects on. Andrew mentioned this verse last week in Psalm 16. But the psalmist says this, In your presence, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, if you don't like the poetic language, if that's a little too flowery for you, Jesus gives it to us straight. Jesus says this. It's pretty black and white. He says, look, you can't love God or money. It's one or the other. And all throughout this passage in Ecclesiastes 5, the author is hinting at this. Because there's one word that he repeats over and over and over again. Six times to be exact. And the word is God. The word is God. He says money is vain, but God, 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 and God. He's stable. He satisfies. Only he provides pleasure forevermore. So first off, we find our satisfaction in God himself. Second, we enjoy God's good gifts. We enjoy his good gifts. Verse 19, the author reveals that God gives us wealth. He gives us possessions, but he also gives us the power to enjoy them. This verse mentions a little phrase that we can rejoice in our toil. We can actually have joy in our work because this is a gift from God. So all throughout scripture we read this is that everything is a gift from God. James puts it this way, every good and perfect gift, it comes from where? It comes from above. But Ecclesiastes actually takes it one step farther. He says, not only does everything come from God, but even our ability to enjoy the gifts of God, the power to find pleasure in God's good gifts, that actually comes from God. And we don't have time for it. I wish we had time to go to Ecclesiastes 6, 
Because in the very next chapter, the author says this, okay, that not enjoying God's good gifts is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Did you know this? It's actually wicked not to enjoy your life. It's evil. And yet, somehow psychologists are able to to, to measure this and determine this. Did you know that happiness levels in our nation are the lowest they've been since World War II? And I'll just say this, I know this makes me sound like an old timer, okay? But we gotta be really careful about our smartphones and social media. Because do you, you, you know the implicit message of social media? It gets us to obsess, to meditate, and to focus on what I don't have. What I don't have. I don't have the new Jordans. I don't have the latest Traeger grill. I don't have ticks at, ticks or tickets to this amazing concert. Do you see? Instead of being fulfilled with what I do have, it creates a discontent for what I don't have. And then I start to focus on what others do have. They have the good life. They have the cute puppy. And it's spring break week in Carrollton, so what do we tend to focus on this week? They're going on the amazing vacation. They've got the perfect family. They've got the six-pack abs. They have what I don't have. And the author is saying this, instead of craving more, instead of desiring money, enjoy what God has already given you. Be content. Take pleasure in, his, in the current generosity. In Hebrews 13, the author says this, keep your life free from the love of money. He says, learn. Learn to be content with what you have. It's really interesting. But contentment is something we learn. It doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't happen in an instant. It's a process. And this should be our prayer. God, I want to learn how to be content. I want to learn how to be happy and satisfied with what you've already given me, okay? So first, we've got to enjoy God. Second, enjoy God's good gifts. Third, we've got to be generous. We've got to be generous. We've got to give it away. In, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about that, he, he, he describes how we should labor or we should work so that we might have something to share with anybody in need. This is why we work. This is why we take on careers, so that we can share with those who are in need. Honest work is done so that we can share with our family, our friends, our church members, and others who have a need. So here's what this means. Anytime you get a promotion, a little pay bump, a bonus, God would say that when you get a promotion, it's not to increase your standard of living, but your standard of what? Of giving. We get to give it away. So we should deeply enjoy our work and what we have, but we should also use what we have to meet the needs of others. This is something that my family's embraced, okay, over the years. We actually sit down right around tax season and we say, how can we give more? Is there another nonprofit? Is there another organization? How can we increase our tithe? And just know this, it's not something we have to do. It's not something we do out of obligation. We try to have a 2 Corinthians 9-7 mindset. This is 2 Corinthians 9-7. It says this, it says, each should give as he's made up in his own heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Do you see this? We get to give with cheer, with satisfaction, with joy. We get to give. Remember in Ecclesiastes 5, who was the unhappy individual? The one who amassed his wealth. He was stingy. He was a miser. He hoarded it, and it made him unhappy. 
He was constantly dissatisfied. Guys, the path to happiness is through generosity and sacrifice. Let's think about this just for a moment. Who is the happiest human that ever walked this earth? Most satisfied, most content. When in doubt, say who? Jesus. There we go. And yet Jesus, did he ever own a home? He didn't. No. Did he ever own a Chevy Suburban or the brand new minivan? He didn't. Did, did he ever go on a really opulent vacation at a, uh, you know, um, all-inclusive? No, by, by all accounts, Jesus never traveled more than 300 miles from his own hometown. Did Jesus have a 401k, social security? No, he didn't have any of these things. Jesus' life was marked by sacrifice, selflessness. He gave it away. And we know this. He didn't just sacrifice his wallet. He what? He sacrificed his life. Think about what the cross was. The cross was the moment of abject, total poverty. At the very beginning of this sermon, I defined poverty in three ways. Lacking material resources, lacking meaningful relationships, and a relationship with God. Do you see this? On the cross, Jesus experienced all three phases. He was naked. He didn't even have a robe. His best friends, his disciples, they abandoned him. They turned their back on him. He was relationally cut off, and even God the Father, for just a moment, just a time, poured out his wrath, condemnation, and judgment. Jesus was totally bankrupt, empty, utterly destitute, and poverty, and full of poverty on the cross. But why did he do it? Well, we're going back to 2 Corinthians, and Paul puts it this way. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why did Christ become poor on the cross? For your sake, so that through his poverty you may become rich. So this is why we're generous, because we say this, Jesus made me rich. And so I get to give it away, I get to pass it on. Okay, final point is this, the blessings of God. We get to store up the riches in heaven. We get to store up riches in heaven. So Revelations 21 is the very end of the Bible. And in this passage... John has a vision of the new heavens, a vision of the new earth. And here's what he envisions. It's a holy city. It's an actual location, and it's a place of incredible wealth. It's opulent. It's over the top. The holy city he describes as like a rare jewel. And he starts pointing out different parts of the architecture. He looks at the walls. He says the walls are made of jasper. He looks at the streets. The streets have made of pure gold. Even the very foundation was adorned with every kind of jewel, and the gates were 12 pearls. Here's the point. The new heavens, new earth, are a place of perfect riches. Even the roads are made of pure gold. So here's the question that John is confronting us with. Why are, you, why are we striving for money? Why are we striving for silver, silver and gold when one day we'll be walking on it? Can you imagine if I stood up here and said, I'm devoting my life to gravel. I'm going to give the next 50 years of my existence on this earth to amass pebbles and dirt. And I get it, gold is shiny. Gold looks great in jewelry. But why would we live for something that in the new heavens will be as common as asphalt and gravel? You'll be walking on it. But more than that, John is speaking metaphorically. And there's two features of the new heavens and new earth that he wants us to grasp. See, when heaven comes to earth, it's described as a perfect cube, but also as a jewel. 
Now, here's what you got to understand. This wasn't a literate culture. This was an oral culture. And so in order to make a deep, profound spiritual point, they would speak in analogy. They would speak in metaphor. So what is John trying to impress upon us? First, heaven is a cube. That seems a little strange. I'm not a city planner. I'm not an architect, but I've traveled the world. I've never seen a city in the shape of a cube. Well, if you're, if you're an ancient Hebrew, here's what you know. There's one other building, and more specifically, there's one other room that has the exact dimensions of a cube. Anybody know what it is? It was called the Holy of Holies. And it was the inner sanctum of the temple. And what this one room represented in its perfect dimensions was the very presence of God. That's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And once a year, on an annual basis, the great high priest would enter that room, and he would be in the direct presence of God. Do you see what John is saying? He's saying, you know what heaven is? It's one big city that's like the holy of holies. Everywhere you walk, everywhere you stumble, everywhere you cruise on the streets of gold, you're in the direct and perfect presence of God. But then the city is adorned with jewels and metals and pearls and silver and gold. And you know what? The great high priests would actually wear a breastplate, breastplate, excuse me, with the exact same jewels. And so once again, these jewels, these riches, these gold and silver, it points to the value of the presence of God. This is what heaven is. It's a city. It's an eternal life. It's an experience of full joy and pleasure forevermore. It's a fulfillment of what the psalmist in Psalm 16 is longing for. And here's how this should affect our day-to-day life. Instead of striving for stocks and bonds, and promotions and bonuses, Jesus instructs us to lay up treasures in heaven. Because heaven is a place where this unending desire that we experience each and every day, it'll finally come to an end. This deep discontent that we have with material possessions and our tax bracket, it will finally be satisfied. This desire we have where we say, I want something more. I want something new. Okay, Our strivings will cease. And this is where the story ends. The author gives us the story of one man at the end of his life, and he's what? He's all alone. He's in a big house, and the lights are off, and he would, in the words of Jesus, be a man who has gained the whole world, and yet what? Forfeited his soul. This is a man who gained everything, and yet he forfeited his soul. So here's my encouragement, is that we would live for heavenly treasures. And so that one day when we get to the end of our life, Five years from now, 50 years from now, we would say this, it was over so fast. My life was a breath. My life was a vapor. It moved so fast. And you know what? I worked hard. I toiled. And I enjoyed God's good gifts, my family, my home, my resources. And I gave it away. I was extremely generous. And you know what? This life was satisfying. It was full. But now I get God for eternity. Now I get God for eternity in the new heavens, the new earth, the heavenly city. I'm so excited about heaven. That's the mark of a life well lived, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we're going to go to the table. Lord, this temptation is so subtle to want to build our life on riches. It affects us all, the rich, the poor, the middle class. Got to pray that you would help us see. I mean, it's really going to take something miraculous and supernatural. This is the air we breathe. We're hardwired as Americans to believe that stuff and possessions 
and materials and a big bank account, that's what gives security and that's what gives satisfaction. Lord, help us see that it's really vanity. It's vain. It's a mist. Lord, I pray that we would see that true satisfaction can only come in you. Let us be people who enjoy the gifts that you've given us. We'll be known as generous people. And Lord, one day, one day we look forward to being in your perfect presence. And this discontent, this unending desire will finally be be fulfilled by the pleasure of the satisfaction that only you can bring. So Lord, help us worship you as we come to the table. Amen.